I want to thank all the labor unions here in Dane County that help keep SlyOffice.com up and going so you keep up to date. Whether it be the Madison Firefighters, Local 311, or the Madison Teamsters, Local 695, or our friends at Madison Teachers Incorporated. These are some of the most active local unions who organize, 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 and constantly stand up for workers. Thank you from SlyOffice.com. When you're looking for a new computer or need help with one you already own, call 231-8000 and Madison Computer Works will get things up and running for you. Madison Computer Works, computers that work for you. Welcome to another podcast at SliceOffice.com, brought to you by our friends at the Operating Engineers, Local 139. Also, our friends at Madison Teamsters, Local 695, Madison Firefighters, Local 311, and Madison Teachers Incorporated. Associate Editor of the Capital Times and Correspondent for the Nation, John Nichols, joins us. Well, John, it's been quite a week, and uh, people are making all their references to Saigon and uh, now, now I've heard people making uh, references to the Iranian hostage crisis. Uh, but let's just let's just start out with how Donald Trump talked about Afghanistan over the years. Here we go. The same as I've been thinking for the last number of years. What are we doing there? These people hate us. As soon as we leave, it's all going to blow up anyway. The White House had hoped to surprise the world with the Taliban at Camp David signing a peace deal. Some Republicans criticizing the White House for the time and place of the meeting, especially just days before 9-11. President Trump was at that moment crowing about how great he gets along with the Taliban. Taliban prisoners were released from Afghan custody yesterday. The Afghan government did not want to let them go because of what these prisoners were accused of, but the Trump administration insisted. The Taliban welcomed the news in a statement today from Doha. A meeting between Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Taliban negotiators in Qatar. And they did a rather crucial thing that I think has been part of the, the failure here, which is they excluded the Afghan government from the negotiations. The president appears to have gotten ahead of his negotiators and his national security team. With some warning, this may reward the Taliban and undermine the delicate negotiations taking place right now in Doha, Qatar. You're not going to need an exit strategy. I don't need exit strategies. I'll be meeting personally with Taliban leaders in the not-too-distant future. They say they're going to be doing, they will be killing terrorists. Now it's time for somebody else to do that work, and that'll be the Taliban. President Trump ordering a drawdown of troops in Iraq and Afghanistan by January the 15th, just five days before he's set to leave office. The major military move comes as President Trump and his administration refuse to cooperate and coordinate with the Biden administration transition team. Former President Trump released a statement yesterday praising President Biden's decision to withdraw U.S. forces from Afghanistan and called it, quote, a wonderful and positive thing to do. I started the process. All the troops are coming back home. They couldn't stop the process. 21 years is enough, don't we think? 21. They couldn't stop the process. They wanted to, but it was very tough to stop the process. As soon as we leave, it's all going to blow up anyway. That's Occupy Democrats. Somebody had some time to put that together. Well, I mean, <laughs> it was pretty public about it. I actually think for all of Trump's statements, which are uh, particularly telling, uh, the thing that's going to linger will be the picture of Pompeo with the Taliban guy. Have you seen that image? I have not. So there's Pompeo standing like two feet away from a guy in full, I think it's their foreign minister, or deputy foreign minister of the Taliban. In full garb, right? You know, 
and the two of them are just standing looking at the camera. And I'm thinking, you tell me whether that might come up at some point during the Pompeo for president campaign in 2024. <laughs> I'm sure Ron DeSantis has, has that picture. Yeah, Ron DeSantis, exactly. Or, or Nikki Haley, or a very long list of people. Oh, you forgot, Christy, you forgot Christy Nome. She's a real pistol. She's a pistol, and she's also, because she's never had anything to do with foreign policy, is probably the one who would be the first and foremost to do it. But, you know, look, the Trump administration, you can, I think it's fair to say that you and I have probably faulted them for more things in more ways than, than just about anybody. Um, but the truth is, they were right to recognize that it was time to end the U.S. presence in, in Afghanistan. And, um, and they did start a process. And it is, in fact, true that when Biden came in, there was some debate about reassessment of it and whether this was, you know, whether this had been set up right and whether it was heading the right direction. But to Biden's credit, Biden decided to see it through um, because at, at, at a certain point on the international stage, when you say you're going to do something, it actually matters. Uh, because a lot of people start to make plans on the basis of that, and the strategies develop. Uh, and so they decided to see it through. I wouldn't say that the Biden team has done things in the way that I would have. I think I would have, you know, probably gotten some kind of arrangement with a third country and, you know, set up a massive airlift, uh, you know, prior to a date certain. And I think I would have, I would have hoped that I had, you know, a better sense of the Taliban's uh, abilities on the ground. You know, their their presence, uh, which I've always believed was much was much greater than a lot of the U.S. intelligence folks have claimed. But with that said, um, you know, Biden's seen it through. And the strange part about it, Sly, right now, is that for all the criticism of Biden, I I think there's a reasonable chance that he is going to pull off a not only a successful dial down of the U.S. presence there, but uh, a, a significant and probably one of the more uh, ultimately effective extractions of U.S. personnel and allies and, and supporters of the U.S. to to safe haven. So we, it's, now, it's not pretty. It's not going right. well, I wouldn't say, but I think that's probably where it ends up. Do you think it was a mistake to close Bahram Air Base? And, and not be using that to facilitate, the, to abandon that, and not be using that to facilitate this evacuation? I think so, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that that the U.S., my sense is that the Taliban wants the U.S. out uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, both nefarious and, and practical. Um, and so I think that the U.S. had the capacity to keep that air base open, and frankly, had the capacity to say, "Look, we're going to, we're going to extract. We're going to, you know, remove the both our folks and the people who um, have worked with us over the years if they choose to leave." Um, and you know, that I think that more should have been done. I, you know, I'll say it bluntly, I think more should have been done up front on that front. Um, it looks like now. It, there's actually a real scramble to do that. And again, I suspect that it will come together reasonably successfully. It's a mess, a little bit of messy now, but, but ends of wars, by the way, Sly, I, I know this is news to you. 
Um, but ends of wars are often messy. And the, the, especially a war that involved a measure of occupation where not everybody was happy about that occupation. So some of the anger among conservatives uh, obviously is opportunism. But is some of this from the Washington establishment and Nicole Wallace, who knows a little something about military engagement from the administration she served in, she says she thinks there's a real disconnect between the Washington establishment and the American people, that the American people actually support Joe Biden on this. Um, 100%. But you think a lot of this has to do with hubris. In other words... American, uh, you know, the, um, the American establishment doesn't like to see the United States humiliated. Like we, we, you know, this gl- sort of globalism that we weren't able to go in there and fix everything. And it, it looks like a loss of control and power. Yeah. I mean, look, uh, there's, there's about uh, a group of people who operate in about maybe, you know, they go to work in roughly 10 blocks of Washington, D.C., you know. Uh, either in think tanks or as lobbyists. I remember a lot of them are lobbyists for the military-industrial complex, uh, or as even members of Congress in some cases. And they're sort of obsessed with uh, the U.S. role in the world. And that's – I'm not even necessarily going to criticize always because that's something somebody's got to think about, right? Um, but I, I think they are not just out of touch with the American people. They are at odds with the American people. That's a, di- that's a slight difference. You know, when you're out of touch, you just don't know where the people are at. When you are at odds with the people, you're trying to actually push an agenda, push a line that the vast majority of people don't want. Uh, and the fact of the matter is the vast majority of Americans do not want the United States to be the policeman of the world. Um, they, I think that they're very sympathetic, and polling shows it. They're very sympathetic to humanitarian aid, they're very sympathetic to diplomacy. They're very sympathetic to supporting human rights. I mean, it, the American people are good people, but they don't want their sons and daughters being sent off to occupy foreign lands. And this is not a new, this is not a new thing. Right. This is a very hardwired thing into the American sensibility. And so I think, yes, there is a radical disconnect. And frankly, I think that since this... Uh, the withdrawal has kind of hit the news in the last week or so. You've seen one of the biggest problems at all, which is, which is our, our broadcast media. Our broadcast media uh, is, is showing itself at its worst right, worst right now, and that is its inability to have a nuanced, thoughtful discussion about something that is very complicated. And, uh, you know, there's, I, I hear, I, I can't... Well, what, what would make this different from anything else? <laughs> Well, you know, I'm sorry, but, uh, but, but a lot of the conversation last year during the policing stuff wasn't a very nuanced conversation either. And now there's blowback on that. I, I understand. And I understand it's all over the place. And, but on this one, I just to focus in on this, not to disagree with your point. Um, uh, on this one, your, what you've got here is a situation where people who, you know, maybe anchors and others who dropped in once or twice to Kabul and were in the, like, four-block area where you can get a latte, right? Um, and, and maybe even a few who did a little more. They're, they're sort of absorbed with um, the story of the moment. And 
they're not looking at the roots of it. I was on a was doing a show the other day, and somebody said, "Well, if you could name one person who's responsible for the mess right now, who would you name?" And and I and I said instantaneously, Dick Cheney, of course, right? Because you can go back to Dick Cheney's quotes from 2001, 2002, 2003, um, where you saw this evolution from we're going to get bin Laden to um, we're going to establish a government in, in a system in Afghanistan that we like. And you went, you know, whether they called it nation building or whatever else, that's what they, that's the, the path they set us on. And to not make that point. Um, especially when you're sitting with Liz Cheney, who's blaming, you know, Joe Biden for getting everything wrong, right? Uh, and a little bit Donald Trump. Uh, it, it's ahistoric. It's, it's unrealistic, and, and it's damaging. The other thing too is that um, they're they're so obsessed with one story from 1975, which is the end of the, the war in Vietnam. Um, or the dial-down of the war in Vietnam, and the images of people on the top of, of the embassy trying to get on a helicopter, which are pretty, you know, scary and unsettling, uh, that they don't step back for a minute and think about the ends of wars in general. World War One, the end of World War One, was such a mess and so destabilizing that we continue to live with some elements of the play out of it to this day in the Middle East and in some parts of Europe. The end of World War II, by the way, end of World War I led to World War II in an awful lot of ways. End of World War II, you had more than a million refugees uh, walking across Europe. You know, people just displaced persons, probably many more than a million, uh, all over Europe. And an incredible chaos in that aftermath, um, a redrawing of maps all over the place, a Cold War um, that lasted for decades and had all sorts of complexities to it. Wars don't end easy, and they don't end all right. Clean. Let me throw a couple things at you for people that say, hey, "Look, we kept we've kept troops in Korea, we've kept troops in yep. Germany, we've kept troops." You know what would have been wrong with keeping this small group of uh, forces in there if, in fact, it kept the peace? Oh, I think there's a big there's a big difference there. Uh, the troops kept in Korea uh, were. Maintaining, I mean, the primary goal of troops in Korea, as I understand it, is to maintain that line of de- demarcation, right? To to assure that you know a war between two regions, which clearly did not want, you know, did not want to continue fighting, the U.S. is you know at least to some extent in a position there to to prevent uh, you know ongoing hostilities. That's kind of a different thing. Um, it's not to say. There's a huge number of folks in South Korea that would like the U.S. to leave. There always has been. There's no question of that. But um, in the overall scheme of things, uh, I think a comparison between South, U.S. presence in South Korea and some sort of lingering presence in Afghanistan, I, I don't do not see that comparison whatsoever. I think in, in uh, Afghanistan, you'd be maintaining um, a, an experiment in a, in a few places, not some sort of you know bigger bigger kind of governance and, and function that is broadly popular. Um, and as regards Germany, you know, in Germany at this point, the, the truth of the matter is that we have bases in Germany, not, not you know, some, any kind of, you know, defining military presence. And even when we were there, remember when the United States was in Berlin and, and in, you know, that, that kind of Cold War era, 
um, you also had uh, the United Kingdom and France who were, were present there. It was a, it was sort of a an allied presence in that country. Now you can again like it or dislike it, but it was in the context of a transition that um, I will point out to you. Uh, you know, it took a long time. There's no question of that. The Berlin Wall was up for a very, very long time, and a lot of the challenges there. But it was, I think, it, it was different in so many ways uh, that to try and make the comparison, uh, you would have to say, well, we should keep um, U.S. troops in Afghanistan for another 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, um, because maybe it'll work out. Whereas after 20 years in Germany, I think it's fair to say it looked like at least some elements of, of the transition had worked out after 20 years in South Korea, I think, similarly. And um, I would ask another question slide. Let's, let's reverse it slightly and say, do you think we should have stayed in South Vietnam? And how long? How long should we have, uh, you know, protected uh, Saigon and those incredibly corrupt uh, well, corruption seems to be the uh, the genesis of a lot of problems of, that, that went wrong in Afghanistan and everywhere else. That is for sure. We'll take a break. John Nichols from the Capital Times and the Nation with us at SlyOffice.com. Similar to a well-tuned automobile, a guitar requires the same level of attention to perform at its very best. No matter how expensive your guitar may be, we will treat you and your instrument with the utmost respect. Call 920-723-1733 or visit jeffsguitar.com. Jeff's Guitar Clinic in Ford Atkinson, we love guitars. The attorneys at Jingris, Thompson & Walks have had the honor of receiving numerous awards for their work both in and outside the courtroom. But just as important as receiving accolades for being skilled attorneys, it's equally important to give back to the community in which they live and work. If you want a personal attorney that can help you in so many different areas, they've got them. They're in Eau Claire, Madison, Milwaukee, and Waukesha. They're easy to reach. GTWlawyers.com. That's GTWlawyers. We're back at SliceOffice.com, brought to you by our friends at Madison Computer Works. Also, Jeff's Guitar Clinic. John Nichols again joins us. Uh, Let's talk a little bit more about and how the United States sees itself in the world. I look at uh, gang violence ripping up Central America and Haiti, and really what's going on in Afghanistan, our series of gangs all fighting one another. Where is the United States in, you know, where should our place in the world be if we don't do occupation to sort of see if we can help uh, these struggling, struggling countries. You know, I sometimes ask God, uh, could you spread the pain around the world a little more equally? Does Haiti deserve everything in the world <laughs> thrown at it? Uh, sometimes, yeah. sometimes as a Christian, I, you know, Haiti's the, Haiti's the thing that's gotten, gets me to scratch my head. You know, I don't yeah. know what God's plan yeah. is for Haiti, but, um, you see all this going on, you see corruption, you see gang violence, and what would you say that our place should be in the world in dealing with all? I, now, fully well acknowledging the United States' role in global capitalism causing some of these problems. Mm-hmm. What, do you, what do you see as a solution? Well, I think the first thing is to, to recognize that countries always have interests, right? And 
it's notable that in Afghanistan, as an example right now, uh, the Chinese and I believe the Russians still have their embassy open, and they're, they're open for business, right? They're, they're clearly uh, looking at ways to be very influential, uh, I think, for their own interests in Afghanistan. And, and so there is an argument that, uh, that just looking at, at, from a global standpoint, you know, representing your own interests, making sure that, uh, that A, terrorism is dialed down and, and, and dealt with as best you can, but B, also, you know, looking for ways that the U.S. can be a presence in helping to develop countries, uh, even countries that we don't necessarily like in every way, that we don't necessarily agree with in every way. I think that's, that's one way to do it. Um, and, and I think that, that bilateral trade agreements, I don't like the big multinational trade agreements that, that tend to be written entirely off of Wall Street, but I think that bilateral trade agreements can work in, in many cases. Uh, but the final thing I'll tell you this is this one. If you're serious about this, um, then my argument would be that the United States should uh, dramatically increase its support for an engagement with the United Nations and work really hard to make the United Nations a much stronger presence globally because the fact of the matter is that the United Nations should be the vehicle by which uh, you help individual countries and, frankly, even if they're peacekeeping troops and things like that, that they, that they go in. And... Um, for too long, we've had successive administrations, much more the Republican administrations than the Democrats, who've undermined the United Nations, who've made it, it very difficult for the United Nations to function on the world stage as effectively as it could or should. Trump was the worst of that, but but it, he wasn't the first. Well, and he gutted and this, so, and he gutted the State Department. Exactly, and so I, the answer to this is unfortunately not an easy, simple fix. It's not like, oh, well, then you do this. No. The answer of if you're not going to be ever at the ready to invade and occupy anybody that bothers you around the world and to remain there for decades, even centuries, like the British Empire, right? If you don't want to be the British Empire that we fought a revolution against, then you have to do a lot of things. And those things involve uh, diplomacy, aid, cooperation with international agencies, all sorts of stuff. And here's one little tiny thing that's happening right now that I would point to as an example of of how to go at this. Um, Mark Pocan, the congressman from the 2nd District in Wisconsin, just proposed uh, to cut the defense budget by 1%. A 1% cut in the defense budget and to use that money to vaccinate the most vulnerable people globally. And that 1% cut, which would release you know, tens of billions of dollars, um, would be sufficient to dramatically shift uh, the pattern as regards vaccination against COVID right now. And so you say, well, you know, yeah, that's, that's probably useful to us from a, from a health standpoint and from a whole bunch of those. It's also useful to us uh, from an image in the world, our role in the world. If we are the country that is literally cutting a tiny portion of our incredibly bloated defense budget uh, to fight against COVID-19 uh, on a global stage and to help the poorest and, and most uh, disadvantaged countries on this planet. Uh, I think that's a very good example of one small thing yes. that might be part of a much bigger strategy. Yeah, well, when the 
book is written about this pandemic, Bill Gates and Pfizer are not going to are not going to look very good for what they did to the proposal that Panama had in yep. vaccinating the world. Oh, and so, and You're probably way, surprised I know that. You're probably surprised I know that, but no, I think I'm glad you know it. Thanks to the C- thanks to the CBC, I know that. <laughs> we should also point to Pompeo because you know Mike Pompeo, as our Secretary of State, um, resisted all kinds of global agreements and partnerships that could have gotten a lot of this jump started very early and would have had a real role. He also was obsessive with criticizing countries that accepted aid from countries that the U.S. didn't like. So he was literally, you know. He was just in a constant kind of uh, geopolitics positioning from his, you're kind of still living in his old Cold War rather than actually trying to get on top of it. And I will tell you, in a situation where you're talking about exporting vaccines and helping people around the world and things like that and, and providing aid, when the United States um, is often, you know, kind of like the barrier to getting it right rather than lead on getting it right, that's absurd. So uh, back at home, we had something very interesting happen yesterday. Uh, We're recording this on a Friday morning. Uh, This is from NBC. Nearly five hours after he parked his pickup and claimed to have explosives, a 49-year-old man from North Carolina gave up and followed instructions to crawl away, ending a tense standoff. He got out of the vehicle. Um, and uh, surrendered, and the tactical units that were close by uh, took him into custody without incident. Capitol Police say it all began a little after 9 a.m. when the man, Floyd Ray Roseberry, parked his black pickup on the sidewalk of the Library of Congress, called 911, and said he had a bomb. That's about a block from the U.S. Capitol. Nearby buildings were evacuated, including the Supreme Court and a House of Representatives office building. Police and federal agents swarmed in, including the FBI and ATF, and streets were shut down several blocks away. A massive response, and the city still on high alert after the Capitol riot and social media threats of further violence. At first, police say Roseberry communicated with them by writing notes on a dry erase board saying, don't shoot me at one point and asking for his preacher. And as it began, he was actually sending a live feed from inside the truck to his Facebook page. All right, guys. Looks to me like I'm getting ready to make a phone call. He then made a long series of anti-government statements. A short time later, Facebook cut off the feed and took down his page, but while it was still active, he showed glimpses of what looked like it could be a bomb and said he had potential explosive material in a toolbox in the bed of the pickup. Investigators reached out to his family members and searched his North Carolina home, looking for clues of what he might be up to. Police sent a robot carrying a phone so they could negotiate with him, but they say he never used it and simply gave up. Pete Williams reporting there. While most members of Congress thanked the Capitol Police for their good work yesterday, one Republican lawmaker appeared to sympathize with that man arrested for the bomb threat near the Capitol. Alabama Congressman Mo Brooks released a statement that reads this way, quote, I understand citizenry anger directed at dictatorial socialism and its threat to liberty, freedom, and the very fabric of American society. The way to stop socialism's march is for patriotic Americans to fight back in the 2022 and 2024 election. I strongly encourage patriotic Americans to do exactly that, more so 
than ever. He- All right. Uh, you know, I used to think that Roy Moore was the craziest Senate candidate ever in that race from a few years ago in Alabama. I'm, I'm kind of thinking Mo Brooks might might be moving ahead of Roy. Um, look, Mo Brooks is—he's—he's he's a mess on a lot of fronts, right? Um, but you got to give him credit for uh, you know kind of hubris or, and for you know kind of uh, illegitimate confidence. Uh, here's a guy who was central to January sixth. Right. I mean, here's a guy who was you know on the stage and saying things that that. I think Donald Trump would have been embarrassed by wearing body uh, armor. Absolutely, um, and, and somebody who you know I think might still be um, at least the subject of investigation, potentially prosecutable, um, and and he's out there pushing the line. Yeah, I. But I don't think. What was the word you used? Did you say crazy? <laughs> right. You see, I don't. I disagree with you. I don't think Mo Brooks is crazy at all. I think Mo Brooks, I've watched him for a very, very long time. I think he is uh, one of, if not the most cynical people in American politics. I think he's somebody who is um, obsessively focused on the advancement of his career. And, um, you know, he's, whenever there's been a Senate seat open or an option open, he's been jumping at it. Um, he, he's clearly, I think he's very calculating. And I think that's a much more dangerous spot. People that are crazy, right, um, or, you know, that have some kind of problem, that's one thing. And you, you identify them and, and just hopefully don't listen to them, don't follow them. But people who are constantly calculating uh, to move us toward something that would probably be referred to as Trump 2.0, um, those are the ones you should worry about. I think Mo Brooks is, you know, at, at the head of that list. Well, what category would you put Ron Johnson? Oh, I think I'd go back to the, you know, closer to the crazy. Um, you know, look, Ron Johnson's a complicated guy. Uh, I, I think Ron Johnson thinks about um, one thing and one thing only, and that is his own comfort, his own, you know, like the improvement of his situation. I think he's a classic example of somebody who went to the U.S. Senate uh, to take care of himself. And in this case, obviously, that's, Tax breaks for himself, tax breaks for his families, businesses, tax breaks for his friends. And as ProPublica exposed in this incredible uh, report from last week, uh, massive tax breaks to the tune of a half billion, potentially a half billion, uh, for his campaign donors. I think that's what, that's what he focuses on. Beyond that, um, you know, I think he, he puts in the minimal effort uh, and – that minimal effort is to study up on whatever conspiracy theories floating around on the internet the morning that he has to hold a committee hearing or, or speak. Well, we now know why all that money came flooding in the U.S. Senate race in 2016 at the last minute. Russ Feingold was ahead, and suddenly, what, yep. $12 million came pouring in for Ron Johnson? Well, could be even more. Yeah, yeah. One of the ads they ran, one of these cynical dark groups funded by Diane Hendricks and the Ulines and others, uh, literally accused Russ Feingold of being pro-free trade with China, which is really one of the most <laughs> remarkable things in the world, considering Russ Feingold's career uh, was absolutely the opposite. But I think it hurt him because oh yeah, when you throw $12 million up against the wall, you're going to score a few points. Uh-huh. 
No, of course. And, uh, and especially at a point when, uh, late in the campaign, when people, most people had assumed that Ron Johnson was written off, right? The, the assumption was he had been beaten already. And so this, this sort of, this was, looked like, you know, why are they wasting this money at the end, right? But they were. And, and it turned out it was very good strategy on their part. You give them credit for that. Um, but uh, this is the key thing to understand, Spine. You're getting right at the heart of it. At the end of a campaign where you're down in the polls and where literally it's being said, Mitch McConnell's written you off, the national Republicans don't, you know, they're not focused on Wisconsin anymore. They're looking elsewhere to avoid losses and stuff like that. Um, when you can still muster 10, 12, 15, 20 million dollars, whatever amount, for a last minute, very targeted, uh, very effective ad campaign, um, that means somebody, somebody's kind of riding to your rescue, right? They are, they are giving you something that you desperately need. And if you're a cynical person like you, Sly, you might think that they are giving you what you desperately need because they assume that in very short order you will give them what they need. Well, these are some of the same people that were funding buses to go to Washington on January 6th. They're quite a group of patriots, Absolutely. aren't they? Oh, they, they truly are. Um, and I think, look, the bottom line on all this is that um, uh, we, at this point, are in a, in a really tough place as regards a country uh, for all sorts of things. We've got gerrymandering on the horizon. We've got all these you know, attacks on voting rights, voter suppression initiatives all over the country. Uh, from a small d democracy standpoint, we've got uh, some really big challenges right now, and uh, a lot of our attention is focused elsewhere. I would just say that that you know, if I was a Democratic U.S. senator, my primary focus uh, would be to get back to Washington, pass the For the People Act, pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, even if you have to do a workaround of the filibuster, whatever you have to do, because frankly, um, there's very little time to avoid a radical gerrymandering uh, and a host of uh, assorted uh, voter suppression measures around this country that could well decide the 2022 elections before a ballot is cast. And so I think Democrats are in a perilous situation right now, and they ought to be thinking a lot harder about it than I think some of them are. Sean Nichols from the Capital Times and The Nation. Thanks for coming to Sly's Office. Sly'sOffice.com. Thanks a million. Bye-bye.